We, a quick building update. The building is coming along really, really well. Um, there's a lot of work left to be done, but we have come so far, and a lot of that is because you have been generous in your giving, and you've been generous in your time to serve, and so I want to thank all of you who have been serving and worked really hard. Uh, I want to especially thank Greg, who's just literally killing himself. He's, he's sick this morning because working him so hard. Um, Without him and those of you who have come along aside of him, uh, we just it wouldn't we'd be looking at a year out on this thing. But it's we're we're on track to be in there for Easter Sunday, so we we look forward to doing that. It's coming together. We have some things happening this week. Uh, a couple we've tried to do as much of it as we can ourselves to save money, of course. Um, but we do have some contractors coming in, one to finish drywall and another to begin painting. So that will really pick up the pace. Uh, we're getting to the point where we're kind of done tearing things apart and we're done with the prep work and we're going to start putting things back together and you'll notice huge differences over the next couple of weeks. And so look forward to seeing that come together and to worshiping with you very soon there at the new building. Uh, if you're not familiar with where that's at, it's, uh, it's near the Hillcrest Country Club or the Volkswagen dealership in Lower Borough. And so if you've not been in there yet and you want to see it, please reach out to us. We'd love to give you a tour sometime and let you see the new facility. With that, let's go ahead and get into the word together. I do want to uh, prepare you. Uh, you may have received a communion cup on the way in. If you did not receive one but want to take communion with us today, we will have those available before we take communion. We'll, we'll have the guys come around with those. Uh, but we do intend to, to worship the Lord through communion after the sermon today. So, And you'll see uh, why, I think, as we get into our text. We're in John chapter 6. We're going through the Gospel of John. This is our third and final week in chapter 6. I mention that because those three weeks sort of flow together. If you didn't hear the first two sermons, no sweat. I think we'll catch you up really quickly on the things that you need to know for today. But certainly would encourage you to listen to the previous sermons from this chapter. Because I think they've, they've been, this is, this is one of my favorite chapters from John. And so I, I hope that you've been following along. If not, please go back and listen because I think this is a really, really great text. I'm going to read today from 41 through 71. You can follow along on the screen or on your phone or however you choose, uh, or you can just listen if that serves you best. So let's look at John chapter 6, verse 41. Therefore the Jews started grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They were saying, isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Stop grumbling among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has listened to and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly I tell you, verse 47, anyone who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the man in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that anyone may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The bread that I will give you for the life, for the life of the world is my flesh. At that, the Jews argued among themselves, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Verse 53, So Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, unless... You eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life in yourselves. 
The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Because my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. It is not like the manna your ancestors ate and they died. The one who eats this bread will live forever. He said these things while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. Therefore, many of his disciples heard this. When many of his disciples heard this, they said, This teaching is hard. Who can accept it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, asked them, Does this offend you? Then what if you were to observe the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? The Spirit is the one who gives life. The flesh doesn't help at all. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some among you who don't believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning those who did not believe and the one who would betray him. He said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. From that moment, many of his disciples turned back and no longer accompanied him. So Jesus said to the twelve, you don't want to go away too, do you? Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus replied to them, didn't I choose you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. He was referring to Judas, Simon Iscariot's son, one of the twelve, because he was going to betray him. Let's pray. Jesus, you rightly stated that no one can accept these words apart from the help of the Spirit. And no one comes to you unless your Father and our Father in heaven draws them and allows them to come. With that in mind, I pray that your Spirit would help us today understand these difficult words. And Father, we ask that you would draw each of us to the Son, that we might know him for eternal life, for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, these are tough words. And we see if, uh, if you look back earlier in the chapter, Jesus has been kind of talking. There's this whole theme of this bread that comes from heaven. He refers back to what happens in Old Testament Israel when the manna comes down from heaven. He refers to himself as the true bread that comes from heaven. He says the manna that, that uh, came down from heaven in, in uh, the Old Testament story, which is right after the Exodus. And if you don't follow all of that, don't worry. Just know that God sent bread from heaven Long before Jesus came, uh, Jesus says, that bread your ancestors ate and they died. But now God is sending bread from heaven that if you eat it, you will live. In fact, you will have eternal life. But then he uses language that is very uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable for the people who heard it then. It's perhaps slightly less uncomfortable for us because if you've been around the church, you probably, as Jesus was speaking about his body and his flesh and his blood, you probably were already translating in your mind to the communion elements, but that wasn't a thing for them. They literally just heard Jesus saying, eat my flesh or you'll die. And even more challenging to accept, drink my blood or you'll never live. This was difficult. One of the things that comes out of this that's important for us to understand, and it's the first thing uh, on the handout if you want to follow along and fill in the blanks today, 
is that Jesus is not merely a good moral teacher. He makes bold claims that only the few can accept. He's not merely a good moral teacher. He makes bold claims that only the few can accept. This is so important to understand about Jesus' ministry. Jesus was divisive in his day. He was absolutely divisive. So much so that he was brutally murdered merely for the words that he spoke. Let that sink in for a minute. Jesus was never accused of theft. Jesus was never accused of murder, of sexual assault, or anything like that. So why was he so brutally murdered? Simply for the words he spoke. That's divisive. That's as divisive as you can get. He, he, he received the penalty of a painful and brutal death merely for the words that he spoke. We must not try to make his words sound uncontroversial today. Sometimes we get defensive. We want everybody to accept Jesus, and so we try to soften his words, and we try to soften his message so that it's more palatable. Jesus had none of that. That wasn't his agenda. He spoke truth, and that truth was divisive. It literally pushed people away from him. We're trying to draw people to Jesus, and he is out here pushing people away. That's because he's not merely a good moral teacher. We must not reduce him down to some sort of moral teacher who said nice things like, love your neighbor, do, a, do unto others uh, as you'd have them do to you. He said those things. He spoke those truths. But that is not, that is, if, if we only see that part of Jesus' message, we're not seeing who he truly is. You see, the world is okay with Jesus if we reduce him to some, some soft-spoken teacher of morality. The world can accept that. And he certainly teaches those things, but he also claimed to be God. He claimed to be the only way to eternal life. He claimed that if, in his words, if you would not eat of his flesh and drink of his blood, you would not see life. That's pretty divisive. That's a bold claim to make. But it's important we understand that about Jesus. We can't get away from that in John chapter 6. Jesus had the crowd in the palm of his hands. At the beginning of John chapter 6, he feeds them. He, he, there's this miraculous feeding where he feeds over, somewhere around 20,000 people with a couple of loaves of bread and a couple of fish. He miraculously reproduces this small amount of food to feed this enormous crowd. And, and everybody is so convinced that this was a miraculous thing that he had just done that they were ready to make him king. You know what that means? That means they were ready to take on the Roman Empire. They were, they were astonished at his miraculous powers. And he could have gotten them to do anything that he wanted to them to do at that point. So what does he do? He stands up in front of them and he gives them a hard teaching that he knows they won't be able to accept. Jesus is divisive. He's controversial. It's the old C.S. Lewis argument. He's either a liar, a lunatic, or he's Lord, but he, we must not make him simply a good moral teacher. 
He's either sinful, he's a liar, he's evil, right? He's out of his mind. Maybe he truly believes these things, but he's just crazy. Or he is who he says he is. He is the Lord. He is the Son of God. He's one of those three things. But the one thing he absolutely is not is a good moral teacher. Okay, next, Jesus is the bread of life who gives eternal life to everyone who believes in him. That's a bit of a summary of where we were at last week. Jesus repeats some of those same ideas that we looked at a little more closely last week here in in verses 47 through 51. Jesus is the bread of life who gives eternal life to everyone who believes in him. Let's look at verse 47 together. Truly, I tell you, anyone who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the man in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that anyone may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Okay, so a couple of things that Jesus is, is reiterating and, and, and going with here. One, we see this throughout uh, John's gospel that Jesus is the better version of the Old Testament types. So there's these foreshadowings of Jesus in the Old Testament. One of the first miracles, the first miracle that happens in the gospel of John is when Jesus turns the water into wine. And, and we looked at that more closely to see that what he was basically saying was the Old Testament ceremonial laws are being replaced by something better, by this new covenant. The Old Testament, Old Testament means old covenant, New Testament means new covenant. The new covenant is replacing the old and it's replacing the old with something better. And we see these allusions to Jesus being the better Moses, Jesus being the better prophet. Now we have Jesus, the better bread. One of the most important parts of Old Testament Israel's history was that 40-year time in the wilderness where God miraculously provided for them life-sustaining bread, which they called manna. He provided in the wilderness this miraculous bread, and it was one of the most important parts of their history as a nation. In fact, they were to keep some of that bread uh, along with the Ten Commandments in the Ark of the Covenant. And so this was one of the things that they constantly celebrated and pointed back to as God's provision. Now Jesus is saying the better bread from heaven is now here. That was a foreshadowing. That was to prepare you for what was to come. Truly, I tell you, anyone who believes has eternal life, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors, they ate the manna in the wilderness, but guess what? They still died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, speaking of himself, so that anyone may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So he's pointing to how he's going to become the, how he's going to provide for them life-sustaining bread. It's through the sacrifice of his body that will happen in just a couple of short years from the time he says this, when he gives himself on the cross to pay for our sins. That is the bread of life, the sacrifice of Jesus. To believe in Jesus, this is the next thing on the handout, let's keep moving here. To believe in Jesus is to partake of his life, death, and resurrection. 
To believe in Jesus is to partake of his life, death, and resurrection. I chose partake here. It's kind of a, um, I don't know, sort of an old English word. But what I love about the idea of partake is partake has, has a double meaning. It, it means to eat or to consume. That's one way that we use partake. We're going to partake of communion. But it also means to join in something. It means to, to not only to remember Jesus' life, death, and resurrection through, through partaking through the eating of communion, but to join our lives in with his life, death, and resurrection. So that, that double meaning, to believe in Jesus, is, is, is to consume him and to participate with him, to unite ourselves with Jesus in a way that gives eternal life. Let's look at verse 52 together. At that, the Jews argued among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So they're starting to become uncomfortable with the language that Jesus is using. He's, okay, he's talking about, he already impressed them with his miracle. He impressed them that he can give them bread. Now he's using that to teach them, hey, there's a greater bread and it's me. And they're probably following along with that. But then he says, the bread that I give you is my flesh. That's uncomfortable. That's a, a little bit difficult to embrace. What is this cannibalism? What does this look like? How do we? So they ask themselves this question. How can this man give us his flesh? I think what you would expect Jesus to do here is to say, no, 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 don't misunderstand me. I'm not asking you to come up and take a bite out of my arm or a bite out of my side. No, what he does is he actually turns up the temperature with his language. He, he's, he takes it a step further. Verse 53, so Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, now he's introduced this idea of drinking his blood, you do not have life in yourselves. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. I'll raise him up on the last day because my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Just as the living father sent me and I live because of the father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. It's not like the manna your ancestors ate and they died. The one who eats this bread will live forever. So he makes it actually harder for them to accept this teaching. And he says, look, you came here because you want manna like your ancestors. That's really why they came. He already called them out early in chapter 6. He did the miracle, and then he left them, and they actually followed him uh, because of the miracle that he did. And as soon as they show up, he says, look, you're just here because you want more bread. And now he refers back to this. He says, the bread that came down from heaven is not like the manna your ancestors ate. If you're here for more bread, physical bread, if you're here for more of the loaves of bread, guess what? Your ancestors had it and they died. He points them to something far more important than having their temporary physical needs met. Jesus is willing to be divisive. He's willing to be controversial because he is not willing to allow people to go through life thinking that if they just have their temporary physical needs met, then everything will be okay. His divisiveness is actually an act 
of divine love. His, his controversial language is to awaken their need for not just physical life, but eternal life, spiritual life. They, if he does not intervene, they are going to live the rest of their lives thinking all they need is physical bread. So he wants to shock them awake and help them understand that if all you eat is physical bread, you, just like your ancestors, are going to die. We should love that about Jesus. Because we come to Jesus with what we want him to do for us. Jesus, you know, make me, you know, fix our health and give us better jobs and provide things that provide earthly comfort for us. And so often Jesus doesn't answer those prayers the way we want him to. And it's because of his divine love for you. It's because he loves you too much to give you the things that you're asking for when he knows the things that you really need. And that can be hard to accept. It was hard to accept for them. We're going to see that. It was hard to accept for them, and it's hard for us to accept today. But the one who eats this bread will live forever. This is a fantastic truth. Okay, let's look at verse 59 real quick. He said these things while teaching in the synagogue of Capernaum. Okay, let's take a little bit of break from, from the heaviness of this passage. I just want to show you a couple pictures that might maybe lighten things up a little bit. Okay, so the uh, Capernaum is a city that you can go, oh my, look at that handsome guy. Holy, I didn't know he was going to be up there. Capernaum is a town that you can go to today. The remains of ancient Capernaum are still in place. Go ahead to, to the next slide. Um, so this is Capernaum known as the town of Jesus today. This is the, the, time where he, the, the town where he spent a lot of time um, during his childhood, where he did a lot of his ministry. Um, there's, there's a house there that's believed to have been Peter's house, and, and there's all kinds of cool things to see there. But go ahead to the next slide. Just to give you an idea uh, of, of what it looks like today, just some of the ancient um, structures that you see there from, from long, long time ago. Go to the and, well, in the background of that one, there's a building that sticks up a little bit higher. And if we go to the next slide, you actually see inside that building, this is a Jewish synagogue from about 400, uh, B, uh, 400 AD, which is a couple hundred years after Jesus was in Capernaum. Um, but this is a similar structure to uh, what would have been there in the time of Jesus. So when we read the words uh, in verse 59, he said these things while teaching in the synagogue of Capernaum. This is the site where Jesus actually said these words. This is really cool. You can go there today. It's not the same building. Go to the next and final picture slide. Uh, that sign says, the late 4th century A.D. white synagogue built upon the remains of the synagogue of Jesus. So it's not the same synagogue, but it's built in the same location, which is kind of cool. It's a really neat place to visit. Okay, so I just wanted to, I like, one of the things that I loved about getting to go to Israel is having those visual images when I read things in the Bible. So I just wanted to share a couple of those with you real quick. So let's go back to the text. The crowd was okay with what Jesus was doing, but when they learned what he was asking them to do, they lost interest. 
They liked what Jesus could provide for them. They liked that Jesus was able to miraculously provide bread and, and he was healing their sick and doing all of these miracles. But when, when Jesus turned the tables on them and he was asking something of them, namely to believe in him and to consume his flesh and his blood, they lost interest in following him. That's because, and this is the next thing on the handout, Jesus' words are too hard to accept without the help of the Holy Spirit. This is important to understand, okay? Jesus' words are too hard to accept without the help of the Holy Spirit. All right, we're going to look at verse 60 through 66 here. But this idea of Jesus' words being too hard to accept without the Holy Spirit. Verse 60, therefore, when many of his disciples heard this, they said, this teaching is hard. Who can accept it? Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, asked them, does this offend you? Again, if the answer is yes, we would hope that Jesus would say, well, I don't mean for it to offend you. Let me explain it in a way that it doesn't offend you. Instead, what he does, he says, does this offend you? Then what if you were to observe the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? In other words, he becomes more offensive. He's equating himself as, with, with the divine Father. He's reiterating something he's already said before, that he came down from heaven. If I were to say to you, hey, look, I've been on this earth for 39, almost 40 years now. But before that, I used to live up in heaven with God the Father. And he sent me here on a mission. Like, that would be, that was to them blasphemy. He's, equ he's equating himself with God. He's equating himself with the Father. This is blasphemy to them. So he takes something that's hard for them to accept, and then he, he, he ups it to a level that is impossible for them to accept. Does this offend you? Then what, what if you were to observe the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? The Spirit is the one who gives life. The flesh doesn't help at all. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and are life. In other words, he's saying, I'm saying things your flesh can't accept. The only way you'll believe this is if the Spirit helps you. But there are some among you who don't believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who did not believe in the one who would betray him. So he, he had this foreknowledge as this crowd is like ready to make him king. He sees people and he knows that they don't truly believe. That's, that's wild. That's fascinating. He knew who would betray him. Of course, this is a reference to Judas, which becomes explicit at the end of the verse, or at the end of the chapter. He said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. From that moment, many of his disciples turned back and no longer accompanied him. He just chased away thousands of followers. Thousands. That's how controversial this was. But he would rather have them hear the truth than follow him thinking they have life knowing they don't really have it. And perhaps many of them would come back later and receive the truth. 
We know that after Jesus' death, uh, burial, and resurrection, that uh, actually after his ascension, which was 40 days after his, his resurrection, 3,000 people in Jerusalem believed in Jesus in one day and became Christians. Maybe some of those 3,000 were part of this crowd. In fact, it's almost impossible that some of them weren't. There, there, there had to have been some crossover between those who saw Jesus' early ministry and, and weren't yet ready to accept, but at, at the completion of his earthly ministry, maybe came back around and believed. And so Jesus plays the long game here. He knows that they're not ready now. And so there's no sense in them just tagging along, needing fed every day. <laughs> so he allows them, allows them to dismiss themselves. All right, so from that moment on, many of his disciples turn back and no longer to come to him. They show, they show his, their, their true level of commitment. And so Jesus says, there's two reasons for this. One, your flesh cannot accept these words without the help of the Spirit. And that won't happen unless the Father, he said this earlier, no one comes to the Son unless the Father who sent him draws them. So there's two things that need to take place in order for us to believe in the gospel for salvation. The Father needs to draw us, and the Spirit needs to help us believe in what the Son has done for us. You see the beauty of the Trinity working together in our salvation? So often we think about what Jesus did to attain our salvation and our role in believing in Jesus, but we know that the entire Godhead works together to bring us to salvation. And if that does not happen, we will not believe, and we will not be saved. And so when, when we're pursuing our friends, family, coworkers, loved ones, whoever, with the gospel, we must make that a matter of prayer. We must ask God to do the part that only he can do. God, save them. Save them by drawing them to the Son. Holy Spirit, save them by allowing them and helping them to believe the words of Jesus, because apart from that work, salvation will not occur. Okay, so from that moment on, many of his disciples turned back and no longer accompanied him. They were in it for the benefits, but they, they weren't in it for the commitment and what Jesus was going to ask of them. Before we launched Redemption Church, uh, during our pre-launch phase, some of us were gathering at a church in Gibsonia just for, for the opportunity to worship weekly um, called Advanced Community Church. And I actually got to preach this text. Um, I had to preach it all in one week. I've taken three weeks to do it this time. But one of the illustrations I used then that you might remember is that if you were a 90s kid or if you were just alive in the 90s, you might remember the BMG CD Club. How many of you remember BMG CD Club? Like four of us, okay? So, so the BMG CD Club was the greatest thing to happen to 90s kids because if, if you're younger than this, you're so spoiled when it comes to music. Because you can listen to any song at any time just by opening up an app on your phone. We didn't have that luxury in the 90s. We had these things called CDs. You've probably seen them around or thrown them at your little brother or something like that. with them. And so the BMG CD Club was this fantastic deal where you joined. The, uh, you actually joined a club and became a member. And they would give you like 12 CDs for the price of one CD or something like that to get you in the club. And everybody who saw these ads in the mail or in the magazine was like, I'm signing up for this. But what we didn't do was we didn't read all of the fine print of how they were going to make sure that they got all of that money back and then some if we remained members of this club. But it really didn't matter. We weren't planning on staying in the club long term. We just came and joined the BMG CD club for the initial benefits. 
Tragically, that's how most people approach Jesus. They see this offer of forgiveness of sins. They see this offer of eternal life, and they think, well, I want that, but they don't come with any sort of commitment in mind. They don't come intending to to follow through on that commitment. They just want what Jesus offers them up front. And that's what we see happen with the crowd. They loved what Jesus had to offer on the surface. But as soon as he started getting deep, as soon as he started talking about what it means to believe and to what is required to have eternal life, they left him. But that's not everybody. Don't, Don't be confused that everybody left Jesus. In fact, the next thing that you see on the handout is this. But those who have been born again, remember that's the language in John's gospel in chapter 3. You must be born again. Those who have been born again will believe and have eternal life. Those who have been born again will believe and have eternal life. In verse 67, I want to give you a second to fill in those blanks. Born again and believe are the blanks. In verse 67, it says this. So Jesus said to the 12, you don't want to go away too, do you? Remember Jesus, um, it said in the beginning of John chapter 6 when he did the miracle of the feeding of the the thousands. uh, It said, uh, I think when he was speaking to Philip, that he was doing this to test them. Jesus is constantly testing the disciples. So he tests them here. You don't want to go away too, do you? Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. I love those words. There are so many times in my walk with Jesus where the difficulty of walking with Jesus becomes a temptation to throw in the towel. Comes the temptation to say, I don't know if I'm going to keep doing this. And then I remember these words and I think to myself, where else am I going to go? Jesus has the words of eternal life. And I have come to believe that. I've come to believe and to know that he is the Holy One of God. And maybe you have too. And we ought to remember that when things are hard. When Jesus presents challenging truths in our lives when he doesn't answer those prayers the way we wanted him to, but the way we need him to, which is often the more difficult road. Who else are we going to go to? He has the words of eternal life. So Jesus replied to them, verse 70, didn't I choose you, the 12, yet one of you is a devil? He was referring to Judas, Simon Iscariot's son, one of the 12, because he was going to betray him. Do you see how much betrayal there is of Jesus in this passage? How much abandonment? For everything that he's done and everything that he came to do, the masses leave him because he said some hard things. And if that's not bad enough, one of his closest followers, one of the 12, one of the one who, who had been with him from the beginning, one of the ones who would be with him to the end is going to betray him. And Jesus already knows it. What would it be like to be in a relationship with somebody, a close relationship, maybe a marriage or even just a really close friendship, if you were to know 10 years down the road, they're just going to betray you in the most awful way? That was part of what Jesus endured. He did it so that he could offer his life as a sacrifice for our sins. 
They say this because immediately before this, like the day before this, if I understand the timeline right here, was the story, okay, so Jesus feeds the multitude, then he dismisses the crowd, and remember, he tells his disciples to get in a boat and go across the sea, but he doesn't go with them. Instead, he comes to them in the middle of the night while they're on the boat and the waters are getting a little bit rough. He comes to them in the middle of the night walking on water. <laughs> it's incredible. He's walking on the water. And at first they think they see, they're seeing a ghost. I mean, that's a more logical explanation than to think Jesus is walking on the water. They're like, it's the middle of the night. It's late. We've been up. We're seeing things now. So Jesus approaches their boat, and he actually asks Peter. This, this part of the story isn't in John's account of the gospel, and there are uh, logical reasons for that. Um, but it's in the other gospels. As he approaches the boat, Peter actually gets out of the boat and begins to walk on water coming to Jesus. And then his faith shrinks, and he sinks, and Jesus has to rescue him. But he gets in the boat. So the day before, two days, no, I'm sorry, the day before, they see Jesus do the miraculous feeding. That The night before, they see Jesus walk on water and even empower Peter to walk on water. And now he, he gives this teaching. Everybody else, they leave. He looks at the 12 and they say, we ain't going anywhere. We have come to believe that you are the Holy One of God. They've seen enough. They believe in him. And they don't leave him. Judas betrays him, but that's a whole nother story. Uh, but those 12 remain his disciples. 11 of them remain his disciples. They have their moments. They have their bad moments. They all mess up and do things that they're not proud of. But they'll, they'll eventually die for this Jesus who has the words of eternal life. People are going to have one of two responses to Jesus Really, at the end of the day, we could boil it down to one of two. They're either going to believe and they're going to have eternal life or they're going to reject him. It's our job to present him. It's our job to make him known. It's our job, this is our, our, our mission statement at Redemption Church, to declare and demonstrate God's plan of redemption. It's our job to live it out, to let people see it and how we live. And it's our job to speak it with our mouths so that they can hear it with their ears. It's not up to us how they respond. People are going to respond in one of those two ways, and we don't have a lot of control over that. But what we have control over on is the presentation, making the gospel known. Any uh, Princess Bride fans? Maybe this one will go better than the BMG Club. Raise your hand if you like the movie The Princess Bride. Okay, I'm just going to kill myself. <laughs> Have you guys not seen the movie The Princess Bride? <laughs> You're missing one of the greatest movies ever produced, right? Well, there's this fantastic book called As You Wish, Inconceivable Tales of the Making of The Princess Bride. If you haven't seen it, you got to watch the movie. It's a great movie. Um, one of the stars is Andre the Giant. Surely you know, I'm not going to ask this time, surely you know who Andre the Giant is, okay? He was a real-life giant, a really big guy. Um, he was a professional wrestler and an actor and stuff, just a really fascinating human being at the end of the day. Well, he's in this movie, The Princess Bride. He's the giant. And the prince in the movie, The Princess Bride, uh, played by Chris Srandon, who was, uh, at the time of 
this movie being filmed, had two young daughters. And he told his daughters, daddy's in this movie about a princess and I'm the prince and there's a giant in the movie. And, he, and his daughters instantly wanted to meet the giant. So he takes his two young daughters to Andre the Giant's trailer on the movie set, and, and they walk in to meet him. And when Andre stands up to meet them, the girls start screaming at the top of their lungs and run out of the trailer. And here's Chris Sarandon, who's a friend of Andre the Giant, who's completely embarrassed and, and, and uh, ashamed that his daughters responded this way to another human being, begins to apologize. And Andre the Giant says, don't worry. Either they come to me or they run from me. Now we have a much greater savior than Andre the Giant. But our job is to introduce people to him. It's our job to make the presentation. It's, I, I don't like that word. It's our job to make the introduction. It's our job to say, here he is. He's controversial. He says hard things. He does hard things. Not everyone can accept these things. But here he is. And let them decide, do they come or do they run? C.S. Lewis tells the story this way. In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, uh, the, the most important character is Aslan the lion. Aslan is a representation of Christ. And, and, and the Lion, the Witch of the Wardrobe, which is part of a whole series of, of books that became movies. There's a girl who's about to, to meet Aslan. She hasn't met him yet. And there's a guy named Mr. Beaver. Just stick with me if you're not familiar with the story. That's his name, okay? Uh, she says, she says to Mr. Beaver, this is Susan, she says, Aslan is a lion? The lion? The great lion? Oh, I thought, I, th I thought he was a man. And then she asked the question, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. And Mr. Beaver responds, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. So it is with Jesus. He's no mere moral teacher that makes everyone happy. He's God. And he's good. But he's not just whatever we want him to be. He is who he is. He's not safe. He doesn't bow to your wishes. He says hard things. He does hard things. But in the words of Mr. Beaver... But he's good. And he's the king, I tell you. To everyone who can accept this, to everyone who believes and trusts in him, he has the words of eternal life. Let's pray. Jesus, we long to know you. Not some version of you that we've created or that our world has created not some made-up version that conceals the truth of who you are. We long to know you, the Savior, the one who gives eternal life, the one who gave his body, the one who poured out his blood to pay the price for our sins. God, I pray for every person in this room 
that you would draw them to the Son, that your Spirit would enable them to believe, to trust in Jesus for salvation. Give us eternal life. Thank you that you, don't, that you love us too much to just give us what we ask for. That you love us enough knowing what we need to give us eternal life. Sometimes that's hard. Sometimes following you is hard. But you're good. And you're God. And you're the Savior of the world. So we thank you for life. We thank you for the gift of eternal life. May you be glorified in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.